Welcome back to the video verse. This is actually part two of a two-part interview that we did with Thomas Dady of Vimeo. So if you haven't gotten a chance to listen to or watch the first one, go back and check that out. Um, otherwise, we're going to jump right in with Thomas. There's something as a term I want to throw out, and I have a feeling I can just say it, even though I I kind of know what it is, but I want you guys to explain. T thirty five metadata. Talk to me about this and the significance in AV1, particularly with HDR. Yeah. So um, one of the big things we did with AV1 that was improvement over, say, VP9, which is one of the codecs it's based on, is we added a lot of support for in-bitstream metadata signaling. Um, Before this, we could signal some of this metadata in the container, um, but that was kind of didn't match up with what other people were doing with other codecs, and it was an easy way for the data to get lost. So we actually explicitly added this, uh, basically, features to add all sorts of color and HDR metadata into the AV1 bitstream itself. Um, mm. One of those is, is simple static metadata. So we can now say, um, uh, we can encode like color mastering information, for example, for plain old HDR10, um, we can encode uh, all of the parameters it needs into the bitstream. But we also added uh, T35 metadata support. Um, uh, T35 is a previously standardized um, form of metadata that can be included with any video bitstream. It's actually codec independent. Um, okay. But uh, it lets you basically uh, insert uh, any sort of metadata. Uh, but one very relevant piece of metadata that you can insert is H- dynamic HDR metadata. And there's a couple of different standards for this. Um, one, of, for example, is HDR10+, plus, which adds uh, extra T35 messages um, along with frames. Mm-hmm. Um, there's actually a standard for increment Im- uh, implementing this with AV1. Um, if you search for the HDR10 plus AV1 spec, you can find it. Um, but it also allows us to do dynamic metadata in the H- AV1 bitstream for HDR. So does that mean, mere mortal brain here interpreting, <laughs> does this mean that potentially you have kind of a universal HDR information or maybe not universal, but you'd have it that would support HDR10 and Dolby Vision, and you wouldn't have to worry about which version of HDR your Apple TV supports versus your television versus... Is that is that what direction this is going in? Uh, we're not quite there yet, unfortunately. Okay. I'd love that for that to be the case. Um, maybe sometime in the future. Um, what the we dream. do have yeah. is we have the, the T35 metadata... Um, is is codec independent, so it can work with AV1. It can work with older legacy codecs. Um, uh, it can work with whatever else. Okay. Um, and that data, once it's taken out of the codec, can then be sent as you know metadata directly to the TV over HDMI if it needs it. it then that can be sent with it, and that is standard. Um, what is not okay. standard yet is that the, the the T35 metadata itself. There are a couple variants still, unfortunately. So there's um, HDR10 plus is one. Um, Dolby Vision is another. And so okay. those are still incompatible. Um, you could include both with your stream. Um, you could also, a lot of those like HDR10 plus will gracefully degrade to HDR10. For example, okay. if the TV doesn't support the dynamic metadata, it will just use a static metadata. And you can design it such that, that uh, it'll degrade in a way that's still you know, acceptable and viewable. It just is not as nice looking, for example. Um, but it. we still, unfortunately, do have multiple HDR standards with that T35 metadata. Um, and so you will have to pick one if you want to use it with AV1. Okay. We're getting closer, but we're not quite there yet. Yeah. <laughs> so theoretically, the decoder is the, the main job for uh, guiding such kind of metadata of the decoder is just extract such kind of metadata info from the B stream. 
and then get this metadata pass over to the final render, and the render will based on such kind of metadata and do necessary transformation conversion down there before the video is being finally rendered. Right. Exactly. Um, for example, if you're using the David software decoder for AV1, there's actually an API that we just say, please give me the T35 metadata for this frame. And it basically pulls it back out and you get from uh, David, you get the final video uh, in terms of like the YUV um, frame buffer and you get the T35 metadata attached to it. And you either might send that directly to the display device or if you're doing some software processing, maybe you're like tone mapping it to SDR or doing something else, you'll pass that uh, those both to your tone mapper and then you do your final steps there of color conversion. Yeah, then I have a follow-up question. I really just want to confirm with you. For example, if I have the same T35 metadata inserted in, say, HEVC B-stream, and another one is inserted into the A1 B-stream, and then if the decoder, one is the HEVC decoder, there's the A1 decoder, they are both able to extract such kind of metadata out. Suppose the metadata are inserted in both different standard B-streams identical then uh, the decoder will decode the B-stream into pixel domain, the final image to be rendered. And then the player will handle the final rendering, the final final rendering uh, together with the metadata info. So in this stage, do you see this stage is anything related to the standard or is it actually uh, is a codec standard agnostic? That part is codec standard agnostic. Um, so the the only thing that uh, needs to be standardized, especially in AV1, is basically how we insert the, the T35 mechanism in AV1 is very flexible. So, for example, if you look at HDR10 plus in AV1 mapping, it has to specify how those uh, T35 messages are attached to frames um, because uh -huh. AV1 has things like hidden frames that can be used as references for other frames. There's a little bit of details to specify which frames you want to attach to HDR metadata to and how they get extracted. But once it's extracted, and once you get those bits out, then that's purely codec independent. If you have a HEVC stream, or if you have an AV1 stream, and you get that HDR10 plus metadata, the processing from that point onwards is exactly the same. Yeah, then, because um, we got sometimes quite some 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 partner customers ask whether AV1 support Dolby Vision. And so in my understanding technology-wise, uh, the AV1 decoder is able to extract, for example, Adobe Vision metadata info from the B-stream. This is what is within the scope of the AV1 standard. So AV1 already support that. And then once extracted metadata, for example, it's a Adobe Vision format and sent to the final render because that part is uh, codec agnostic. So then how do we, can we, but it doesn't seem we can to tell the the users that currently AV1 is already support Dolby Vision. So this is something, um, whether this is something actual beyond the, the technology that can determine. Yeah, um, AV1 is, is, is technically ready for, for example, Dolby Vision. Um, mm -hmm. It has all the features you need for that. Um, um, because Dolby Vision is, is Dolby's format, they can they would probably want to specify, you know, here here is a Dolby Vision in AV1 mapping, um, kind of like there is one for HDR10+. Um, so, I mean, it, it's hard to, because it's their standard, I can't say it officially supports Dolby Vision, for example, because I think that's up to Dolby to say. Um, but if they would want to do it at any time, all the pieces are ready to there. Um, huh. They will just have to write a very simple mapping, and it will work. 
Got it. That's very clear. So that we can mention that on the AB one side, what the AOM side is ready to support Dolby Vision, and then the left part, we really hope that、uh, there's could be some corporate、uh, cooperation or collaborative effort down the road to finally let the users to enjoy Dolby Vision in a wider range. For example, including the AV one down there. Yeah, that's exciting. Thomas, you've mentioned that、uh, you're currently obviously at, you're at Vimeo. You've been working on the、uh, encoder and coding development there.、Um, can you talk to us a little bit, as much as you you're able to, kind of what what is it that Vimeo is doing in regards to AV one? Are there any unique challenges that a, a huge platform like Vimeo has to deal with、uh, that might be different from others? Yeah,、um, so、uh, there's there's a couple things.、Um, uh, one is that Vimeo is a you know user、uh, uploaded video platform primarily, uh, uh, or uh, there's there's business accounts and the like too. There's all sorts of other businesses, but it's primarily a kind of a、um, self serve you upload a video and it appears. And、um, quite a lot, we have a lot of videos that get lots of views, a lot of videos that get very few views.、Um, so if you compare it to something like.、Uh, Netflix, which has you know a very small relative video collection that has,、mm-hmm. and most of those videos get many, many, many views.、Um, we have many more videos that get proportionally less views.、Um, so there, there is some difficulty in there, in that basically we have our our cost for transcode relative to the view are、um, different than Netflix's.、Mm-hmm. Ah, so one thing we have to do is make sure、um, uh, we can you know transcode AV1,、um, uh, and it, it's you know.、Uh, Reasonably cost-effective thing to do,、um, and make sure that we still give you know a big benefit to our customers that get AV1.、Um, we currently use the Ravi、um, open-source AV1 encoder to do our encodes.、Um, they are done not on you don't get them on every video.、Um, they're currently on, for example, our staff pick videos and other videos with、uh, high view counts that we know we're going to basically get a return on.、Um, we're looking at basically increasing that though. Um, for example, by also potentially doing AV1 HDR, where we can also not only just you know improve the compression, but we can basically give HDR to more customers that wouldn't be able to see it at all.、Um, for example, at web browsers. Very cool. That's, HDR. Yeah, that's really yeah. Potentially,、uh, the technology will benefit the users. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, for sure. And I'm imagining on both ends.、Um, Because with more and more phones shooting HDR, you know, and uploading HDR source footage, all of a sudden now it it becomes even more valuable to keep that that kind of that full HDR stream from glass to glass. Exactly.、Um, so phones,、uh, there's like iPhones now. So for example, upload、uh, HDR often by default.、Um, people often will record in HDR without even realizing they're doing it, and so、yeah. it's increasingly important for us to to both.、Uh, For example, when a、uh, user uploads an HDR video, to make it look just like they saw it on their device. So that, for, me, for example, means replaying them back either HDR, or if they're viewing it on a, a, a SDR device, we want to tone map it well. So we also have our own tone mapping that even if we're generating a SDR stream, we'll do to-、uh, all the appropriate tone mapping on a, on their metadata to make sure it looks similar to how they would see it on their own SDR screen. Very cool. Um, slightly different topic.、Um, something that always comes up when we're evaluating video quality, encode quality, when we're getting into the nitty gritty,、um, is of course VMAF. It's always a topic that comes up.、Um, 
can you give us kind of a quick high-level view of what VMAF is for anybody that, that doesn't know what it is? And then talk to us a little bit about how you guys are using it. I know it's got a couple new tricks, uh, things that it's doing for us, and maybe why it's important. That was a lot, I know. <laughs> but if you can start us off with kind of what is VMAF and the importance of it? Right. So um, VMAF is one of uh, many uh, attempts at a uh, objective visual quality metric. I like so, how you worded that. <laughs> yes. Um, uh, so so basically the, 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 the problem for the longest time is how do you look at a video and tell that it's actually good? Um, right. Like how, how do you give it a, a, a measure of its quality? Mm-hmm. Um, so there's been many attempts at this. The, the oldest and most commonly used still is PSNR where we mm-hmm. just compare like the, the original video our compressed video and we determine um, the mean squared error of each pixel through the image and average that together and give us uh, basically an overall number. Um, it's, but the downside about that is it's very uh, inaccurate in the sense that it's a very easy met- number to do. We can compute it easily. Um, it's repeatable, but it doesn't really match at all what viewers experience. Um, Viewers don't see raw pixel number differences. Right. Um, they see whole objects and textures and walls and things that um, will uh, make uh, PSNR give very misleading answers to how well a video actually looks. Okay. Um, so, so there's been many attempts to make a better codec. Um, and the other thing about PSNR is that it doesn't take into account any sort of motion, right? You're looking at each video frame as if it was a separate image. Um, so VMAF is one of the most recent attempts at this. So VMAF basically uh, works by taking several different metrics together, as well as one metric that's actually on motion too, so it compares previous and next frames. And Mm -hmm. it combines all those scores together with a machine-learned model in order to produce a final score. And uh, it's one of the best-performing metrics if you, for example, you get a bunch of humans in a room, you get them to rate the quality of a video from, say, one to five, and say, does it look terrible, is it perfectly watchable, et cetera? And if you correlate that to the VMAP score generated, it has a very strong correlation. Okay. So VMAP is currently the best tool that we have for this. I'm always saying that, well, video has that uh, three, the third dimension compared to image. And a lot of times the third dimension can be easily easily ignored. And so, so... like it's not just a sliding like a uh, sliding show because of the the time domain so we we lot of time we need to consider the quality along the time right it's mainly the consistency for frame after frame and so only poor frame quality many times cannot really represent the whole picture uh quality wise for video exactly um for example i don't know if you've ever joined in a live stream where you'll see the the quality pulse down enormously um, yes. um but what happens is that if, for example if you have a, a fixed bit rate and you send an, a keyframe or an iframe um it has to send a lot there's no prediction available so it's much harder for it to compress it but it still has to fit in the same number of bits as the previous frames so you'll see this awful quality pulsing as the quality drops and then it comes back and then drops and comes back and uh um psnr sees that a little bit it'll it'll pen, but it's it's a much more offensive uh, visual issue that you see it pulsing um, yeah. that that like PSNR just can't see, um, but VMAF can see that because it compares previous frames to next frames. Um, the the motion uh, uh, metric inside VMAF is still very simple. Um, it is just one, and it's one of several parameters that go into the final machine learned model. I think there's 
know, a lot of research and improvement that can be done in the future to a future version yeah. of VMAP, for example, that could massively improve that even further, right? We're only still at the, the beginnings of, of doing uh, motion analysis for the purposes of video quality measurement. Yeah, because for example, your lab, I, I, I know Tom's your lab uh, from, from what you also said that your lab contribution to the open source community. And now we ha also have Lib, uh, Lib VMAP that's also open source. Uh, I'll just bring up. And, and regarding uh, just now you mentioned like the quality job. And I one being told as a analogy down there, for example, it's just like you do the acupuncture. If every needle you feel like that's good, but suddenly there's one that's really hurt a lot. And in your memory, you only have that deeply in your memory and forgot all the others. So similar with when you watch a video, if you see sometimes suddenly there's a quality job, it's oh, the quality overall is, uh, you will not have a good enough impression. Yep. Um, yeah, having, having it live the map open source implementation is great. Um, for example, we use that implementation at Vimeo. I'm sure many other people have. Mm -hmm. It has an FFmpeg filter if you want to use it inside the FFmpeg command line. Um, it actually, it is uh, called the VMAP, but it also has implementations of other metrics as well. Um, oh. So if you want to do PSNOR, if you want to do SIM, if you want to do uh, hmm. uh, MSSIM, um, it has implementations of those as well. So it's a handy all-in-one library you can use with the same API and get quite a number of metrics out of it. Um, so it's uh, if, if computing VMAP is too slow for you, you could consider, for example, using MSSIM as a not-as-good metric but a much faster to compute one if you want to like get an enormous number of uh, metrics on a wide variety of videos. Um, so it's, it's a really nice project to have. Um, and I'm uh, not aware. <laughs> Thank you for bringing that out. I thought the leave huh. map just doing VMAP. <laughs> nope, it does, uh, does all sorts of things. Um, and it, it's actually, it if, when, like... we, when we test uh, in, in, we, in AOM, when we test video codecs and video features, Mm -hmm. um, we use libvmath as the implementation of all our metrics. So we have metrics that aren't vmath, but we also use libvmath's implementation. Got it. That's actually a little bit important because some of these metrics were designed, uh, they were written in, uh, defined in like, you know, uh, very old now uh, papers. And uh, so either like they had just a definition of the metric written in the paper, or they might have had like a MATLAB implementation. But the problem is that people re-implemented these metrics in their own code base. There were some disagreements and differences when they um, implemented it on newer metrics. For example, the original version of SIM was only made to work on 512 by 512 pixel black and white images. And so when people adapted it to bigger images and color images, they, they decided to do slightly different things. And so if you use a different implementation of a metric, especially for the older ones that were less well-defined, you might get different numbers. And so having everyone use the same reference implementation avoids that issue because we know that it's always going to be the VMAPS implementation when we compare tools. Got it. Thank you for this kind of, uh, like Nathan said, I, I do learn. <laughs> it sounds like VMAF is, before this conversation, I just kind of thought VMAF was kind of a standard static thing. <laughs> But it sounds like it's very dynamic. It's growing. They're developing. It's changing. It's much like AV1. People are contributing to it now. Uh, that that it's it's constantly uh, changing to adapt to all of our exactly. new standards. Is that fair to assume? And uh, yep. And and when we say when I say VMAP, there's actually 
inside VMAP, there are multiple machine learned models you can pick. Um, when, when people just say VMAP without a qualifier, there's like a particular machine learned model, the VMAP 0.6.1 model that uh, they're usually referring to. Um, but there's okay. been actually several improvements since then. Um, since the very first uh, model that was made, um, people figured out you could actually cheat VMAP. Um, you could do some operations like sharpen your picture and do some other simple operations that made your VMAP score up, go up, but they didn't actually make the video look better in any way, which is an indication that like the VMAP, they, like when they initially trained it, they didn't train it on a big enough set that included these sort of distortions. So they actually it. retrained it and they made a model called VMAP Neg and that uh, with, with additional um, distortions included in the training model and that avoided a lot of these initial um, um, basically blind spots in a model where you could cheat it in, in ways that um, clearly didn't correspond with real um, video right. um, and re real user experiences. There's a hack you'll find it, right? <laughs> yeah. And, and, and that's not a VMAP-specific problem. Um, it, uh, it, you know, VMAP for, you know, failed to include some sort of distortions in their video set, and therefore they had blind spots. But sure. it's, uh, it's an issue that happens with every objective video quality metric. For example, yeah. PSNR, as I mentioned, is the worst one. Um, PSNR wasn't machine learned model at all, but yes. it still has um, many things you can do to it that make PSNR go up and make video quality go worse. Um, the huh. most classic example is this blurring. If you do if you do a very strong denoising or blurring filter, um, PSNR generally hates noise, so you can like smooth out your image till it looks like a like you know a, a, a abstract Potato. painting, and PSNR will <laughs> yeah. tell you it looks awesome as a result. Um, but it will actually look terrible. Or, I mean, if you really yeah. like the abstract painting look, it can look good, I guess. But. Yeah, sure, if you're going for that look. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, exactly. I, yep. I have one follow-up, the final question for you, Thomas. Go for it. So yeah, what yeah, go if ahead. you go back to the time that you're trying to get some, um, like, for example, like, uh, um, in, uh, up in the air to do the various uh, communications for video, what kind of technology you would choose at this moment? Oh, I would use AV1, absolutely. Um, <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, the, the great thing is that there are, um, uh, we do have better radios now, so I can actually squeeze, uh, I, at the time I was using an 802.15.4 radio, which um, if nothing more, has a very low bandwidth. It's like, you know, 100 kilobit, uh, you know, barely better than dial-up. And you can totally yeah. squeeze, I could use that exact same radio nowadays, and you can squeeze a totally watchable AV1 stream through that amount of bandwidth, huh. which is pretty incredible. Um, yeah. I would what probably jump to a better radio me? nowadays. But uh, for AV1, I would actually consider either a software or hardware encoder because there are, like, for, there are plenty of ARM chips um, mm. that have uh, fast enough CPUs that they can do software encode of AV1 in real time. Mm -hmm. um, and there are both hardware vendors now that have hardware AV1 chips. Um, and I would be, uh, I'd have to do a comparison between those for the real time use case. And, but I, I can think both of those would be totally viable for uh, an FPV platform. Man, well, that's been, this has been fascinating. Uh, super fun to get to kind of pick your brain and hear what you're working on. You're, you're on the front lines, you know, dealing with real life uh, content here. And so thank you so much, Thomas, for, for joining us and letting us just kind of hear what's, what's going on. Thank you for, uh, you know, educating us, sharing us with so many of these really cool, uh, different things that are going on. And, uh, I hope we get to have you on here again. Uh, best of luck to you, uh, in the, in the open source community and the, in the FPV world as well. <laughs>